back to the One Thing Podcast. I'm Chris Dixon. And I'm Sarah Hendricks. So Chris, I've been pretty open about my challenge with one of the four thieves of productivity, and that's the inability to say no. Whether it's a deep-rooted habit that spans back to my childhood or just thinking I'm a really great employee by always saying yes, I've certainly learned the hard way how saying yes all the time can really crush you. But the inability to say no can be more damaging than just affecting productivity levels. It can create inequality at work. That's why I'm so excited to talk with Linda Babcock and Brenda Pizer, authors of the book, The No Club, Putting a Stop to Women's Dead End Work. Well, we are so excited, Linda and Brenda, to have you both on the podcast today. The two of the four authors of The No Club, we, it's a pleasure to have you. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for inviting us. So I had a little bit of a timely thing happen to me uh, this week, which is I was browsing on TikTok, Instagram, whichever whichever you prefer. Um, and there's a new trending video that's happening where uh, it popped up and it said, tell me you're a woman in corporate America without telling me you're a woman in corporate America. And the video showed a woman being asked to take notes in a meeting. Um, and obviously, as the video goes on, it gets more and more heightened and and it ends with, well, I'm running the meeting, so I can't take notes And I feel like that was very poignant to the conversation that we're having today and the no club and and just the ability to say no to that non-promotable work and really this message of of getting out there and, and saying yes to the things that matter in your career. Absolutely. And one of the things that dogged Brenda through her career is taking notes. Brenda, why don't you share that? It's true. Um, from my time as a consultant through my time in higher education administration, for some reason, when there was a room full of men and one woman, the woman was always asked to take notes. Um, and I, I did actually come up with a solution for that. And we can talk about more solutions later. But what I did one time was when I was asked to take notes, I said, absolutely not a problem. Happy to do it today. Who's going to do it next week? And since we meet weekly, perhaps we could all take turns. And so I didn't take notes quite as often after that. Oh, that's that's amazing. So for the listeners, why don't you give them a, a rundown and I'm going to go through the, the formal name, The No Club, Putting a Stop to Women's Dead End Work. And give us a little bit of synopsis about how you got to this point and where the book really stemmed from. Well, I think we started this because you know, we all realized that we were spending a lot of time at work on projects that were really important to our organizations, but that weren't helping our career. And so we were really felt like we were stagnating, we were stressed out, we never had a time to do what was our, what we call our promotable work, you know, the work, you know, on which we were evaluated. And so we started meeting 12 years ago, uh, as the I just can't say no club. And we started talking about what was this work that was dragging us down. And, you know, we identified the kinds of projects that we were asked to do, and we said yes to, but that were getting in our way. And so, you know, we met for a very long time uh, to learn how to make better decisions about how to spend our time. We did research, we met with a lot of companies and worked with them to understand the problem. And then all that culminated in this book that came out this spring. 
that we hope will be used as a guide for women to make better decisions about how to allocate their time, but also organizations to stop dragging down women's careers with dead-end work. Now, you talked about uh, non-promotable work. Can you explain a little bit about what are examples of non-promotable work? Sure. Um, Non-promotable work is a set of tasks, really any task that matters to the organization, but not to the career of the person who's doing it. So they're all things that need to be done. And, And one of the points that we make very clearly is that these are not tasks that everybody should just forget about or jettison. They really matter to the organizations and they make places more productive, better places to work. So we see the value in them. Unfortunately, the organizations don't always see the value in them. So they come without reward. And those are things like taking meeting notes, serving on committees. I mean, at every one of these things that I mentioned, I'm sure somebody in the room can raise their hand having done those. Um, you might have to handle a low revenue client or a very time consuming client when your hourly work is what really matters. So these are all tasks that you will do, but you won't get a raise for, you won't get promoted for. Maybe somebody will th- say thank you to you when you're done. <laughs> and there are also things like, you know, helping other people with their work, uh, recruiting, DEI activities, you know, work that really is important. Um, and women are doing much more of this work. Does it help to come into that that conversation with yourself with a clear picture of or vision of you know where you want your career to go? I mean, it sounds like it's it makes sense to me what this the, the non promotable work could be. But I guess on the other side of that, you need to have some some clarity on where you want to go. Exactly, it's anything that gets you to where you want to go. So, for example, um, we heard about a bartender who was doing a ton of non promotable work. And you might wonder, what's non-promotable for a bartender? Well, it turns out that whenever there was a new bartender that was hired, the owner of the bar asked her to train the new employee. And so when she did that, she was sharing tips with the new person. And so she wasn't bringing home as much on an hourly basis. And so for her, her goal was to make as much money as she can for each shift. And this training was interfering with that ability. And and so that is also non-promotable work in an occupation uh, like a bartender. Yeah, I was just going to ask what the, you know, the risk or the side effects are of non-promotable work because it it's almost like a small domino, right? It it it's a tiny task or maybe it's to your point, you know, it's big and important to the company, but it lays insignificantly in your list of priorities. Um, and it sounds like if you let those pile up, they can really take a toll on your career, regardless of the industry that you're in. So you can imagine the amount of time it takes if somebody asks you to serve on a committee mm. and you have to meet every week or every month or however often it is. Um, If you're a woman, the likelihood that you are serving on more committees than men is very high. So it's not just one committee, it's probably more committees for women. And in fact, um, we worked with a university that sort of very proudly proclaimed to us that every committee they had was going to have half women and half men. 
And they thought that was a real advance because they were, you know, having representation from all the women in the organization. The problem is that there weren't actually half as many women as men. In other words, there weren't equal numbers of women and men. There were fewer women. So every woman had to serve on more committees than any man. So they were taxing the women so that they could have them represented. And, you know, these things might seem small. You're sitting on a committee or you're helping someone with their work or you're resolving a workplace conflict. But a ton of feathers still weighs a ton, right? And so they do pile up. And what they do is they push out the work that you actually are being rewarded for. And that can cause your career to stagnate. It can cause, you know, you to have lower salary. It can be really stressful as well to never feel like you're having time, enough time to do your promotable work. So the consequences are actually pretty large for women doing all this non-promotable work. One of the concepts from The One Thing and one of the lies that stand between you and success that we teach is that your willpower is on will call. And and the lie is that you have the same level of of willpower throughout the day and what we've learned is you don't. And so imagine too, and the the connection I'm trying to make here is if you're asked to do these non-promotable tasks in in the times of the day where you have your greatest strength, like your morning is is burned by non-promotable tasks. And then you get into the the later parts of the day when you can actually focus on the things that are going to drive you forward and your gas tank is empty. Yeah. And that reserve, you know, not having that reserve can mean that you're just more likely to say yes. So we have a number of rules that um, that help you in this. For example, we have the 24 hour rule. So you can say no to something immediately. But if you want to say yes, you have to wait 24 hours. Oh, <laughs> and that gives you the time to think about it and to, you know, to get that reserve to, to be able to you know, think clearly, like, is this really distracting me from what my main priorities are? Uh, so that's a good uh, trick that, that we use. Eating healthy is an investment. It's an investment in yourself, but it also often requires an investment of your time. But good news is Factor has delicious ready-to-eat meals that are ever fresh and never frozen. They're chef-created, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. With Factor, you can choose from a weekly menu of up to 35 options, including popular things like Calorie Smart or Keto Direction or Protein Plus or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover 60 more add-ons every week like breakfast on the go, lunch snacks, beverages to help you stay fueled, feel good all day. And we know our listeners here at The One Thing are focused on health and health goals. That's why we choose to partner with Factor. And if you visit factormeals.com slash 150 and use code 150, you can get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Again, that's factormeals.com slash ONE50 and use code ONE50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Yeah, I certainly have struggled with saying no throughout my career. And and I know there are probably a myriad of examples I can use where I said yes, and I didn't really want to, but I thought it was going to further my career or I thought somebody was going to, you know, come at the end of the day and give me a gold star and it never worked out that way. And it's, it's, I'm sure, very frustrating to some of our listeners as well who are in similar situations where they they want to say no, but they feel like 
their career depends on it. And I'm curious, Linda and Brenda, how how you would approach uh, that person who who's scared. Well, there are probably good reasons to be scared because if you're a woman, saying no can come with consequences. Um, it's not quite as easy for us because the problem is that everyone expects us to do this work. And because of these expectations, um, we're supposed to be agreeable and compliant and say yes all the time. <clears throat> when we don't do that, we have upset people and we understand that. And so a woman who is worried about saying no has all these things inside herself that are telling her that this could be a problem. So she's coming at it with some justifiable concerns. Um, some ways to get around that are to think about what the task is that you're being asked to do <clears throat> and to decide you know, whether it's worth it for you. So say you're early in your career and somebody asks you to serve, say on a committee with some upper level people, that could give you an opportunity to be noticed by people. And so that could be a good thing for a while. If you're further along in your career and you've been given the same request, it's probably not gonna benefit you very much. So you have to understand sort of what the task is. And then when you go to answer, to give your yes or no, you have to think about who's asking you to do the task. Is it your boss? Is it somebody who's not really um, of huge consequence to your, to your forward momentum career-wise? And so understanding those things will help you make a decision. Having allies, going to find somebody that you can talk to, a mentor, somebody else to get their advice. We used our no club as a sounding board for this because we go in with our own concerns and our own you know, requests. And the other people would sort of talk us down so we had a better sense of what we should be doing. Yeah, the one thing we call that an accountability partner. And, and I thought, you know, I read an excerpt of the of the No Club and was how fascinating for you to have this group of support that was helping walk you through saying no and build you up. Um, how would you suggest that, you know, a listener who maybe doesn't feel like they have that support can go out and find it? I mean, I know that there are lots of different ways, but um, if you're looking for somebody to help you say no, how do you find that person? Well, you know, you can start a club and the way we did it is I just sent an email to four of my friends and said, help, I need an intervention. <laughs> I am uh, <laughs> saying yes to all this, this work that's dragging me down. I need some help. Can we get together over drinks and talk? And, and so, you know, just reaching out to people that you think might have a similar problem is a way for you to build some support. Um, but also you're exactly right. Accountability. Because you know that if you said yes to something really horrible, you were going to have to confess to the club at the next <laughs> meeting. And, and so knowing that you were going to have to do that really made you think twice about whether you were indeed going to say yes or no. I loved this uh, quote from the book, divulging that you had made the same mistake four times in a row was difficult. I can't imagine sitting around in a group and having to say, yep, I said yes to this thing six times, uh, knowing that everyone was going to say, well, why at the end of the day? 
No, that's that's exactly right. That happened a lot. Um, but we did learn slowly over time um, to really make really careful decisions about how we spent our time, um, but also about how to um, gracefully decline a request if we were going to to do that. And our club really helped us helped us figure that out. Yeah, I was going to ask, how did you break the cycle of saying yes? Slowly. <laughs> <laughs> One step at a time. Yes, very slowly. I, I, you know, and, and it's not it's not linear progress. So, you know, you'd say no one time and then you would sort of fall down again and you'd have to get back up and start over. So I think, you know, you start by starting. And so for women who are thinking about should they decline, you know, get a group of people together who can help you make that decision. And those people could be a club. They could be people that you work with. Your supervisor, if you have, you know, a a sort of forward-looking supervisor who's willing to help you consider the tasks that are right for you, um, recognizing that the organization is still going to want these other tasks to be done, your boss can help you figure out what's the best use of your time. Um, and, And so you start by saying no, using the advice of other people. We try to, when, when we, we coach individuals and teams, organizations, we, we work around goal setting. We, we, want, we ask the question, you know, how would you know you're successful with a goal? And when you're thinking about if someone's just getting started and they're, they want to, to begin saying no and saying yes to the right things that will propel them forward in their career, do you have any examples from your experience on you know, what some measures of success could be, especially early on for someone is it is it your calendar? Can you look at your calendar and start to see am I focused on the right things? Or how could someone know if they're they're making progress early on uh, to build momentum behind this transition? Yeah, I mean, definitely. First of all, you you need to know which of the things you should be working on and which are the things that are less important. So you have to kind of make a prioritization about the tasks that you do and what are the ones that you want to make sure you have time for. Once you've done that, you can use your calendar or start fresh one week and, you know, log your time really well about how how you're spending it and then look back over it and align it with those priorities. And you'll be able to see, you know, am I spending my time on the things that are going to matter the most? Uh, You know, am I spending my time well or am I getting dragged down by this work that is never going to be recognized? And of course, everyone has to do some of this non-promotable work because it is work that needs to happen. But our point that we're trying to make in the book is that it needs to be shared more equally among people. Because right now what we're seeing is that there is an unequitable distribution of this work. Um, It's mostly falling on women and people of color. And that that is not helping their careers. I love the stat. I pulled this um, from your Instagram account, which is women are 48% more likely to volunteer for a task than men and receive 44 more requests to volunteer for them. That seems pretty disproportionate. Exactly. So you can imagine if we're asked more as women and we say yes more, we're going to end up doing more of these, these tasks. And and, and so that's how it ends up with this inequitable distribution of, of this work. A very concrete example of that is uh, an organization that we worked with. Um, when we assessed the time spent, 
the women spent 200 more hours per year than men on work that didn't advance them, on non-promotable work. That's, that's the equivalent of a month's worth of time out of their work lives. I want the listeners to stop and think about that for a second. A month's worth of time doing things that weren't going to help advance their career. That just, that's wild to me. Well, it's not, it's not actually a month's time. It's a, a women spend a month more time than men. There you go. So they actually spent a lot of time doing this work. It just told up to a lot more for women. I think that one of the biggest, you know, takeaways from the no club and, and being able to learn how to say no is hearing what you, Linda and Brenda, like, how do you say no now? Well, one, I think one of the things that you want to do when you say no is you want to help the person that asked you because really what they want is help. They have a problem that they're trying to solve and they're looking to you to help them solve it. <clears throat> if you're not willing to, to do what they're asking, then figuring out a way to make it easy for them is going to go well for both of you. So there are a couple of things that you can do. One is... Um, understand why they chose you. And Linda's very good at this. She's done this before um, at work and said to people, why did you pick me? Mm. And once they tell her, you know, what it is they thought about her doing the job, she's then able to see who else might be able to stand in. Um, another thing is to think about answering a request in, in sort of this yes, no, yes way. And that is that you say yes to yourself by setting up um, a good opportunity. You say no to the task, but then you say yes to providing help to the person. So you, you know, recommend another person to do the task or you recommend another way that the job could be done instead of taking it on yourself. You're becoming solution-based and therefore helping what the task is at hand. And and I love that. I think a lot of people, you know, they hear, well, I'm just here to say no. And that's the end of that. But what you're really saying is say no, but also be helpful in figuring out a solution to that. Exactly. The research shows that it's much more effective when you give a no to do something that helps the requester. And that can be brainstorming with this person about other ways they could get Get this task done uh, besides you doing it. Um, and so that's going to be one way to mitigate the negative repercussions that could come with you saying no, is that you're finding a way to actually help the person. When you first got your start, were you um, ever finding yourself like preparing lines? You know, I know that I've had multiple, this is going to make me sound like a, a wild person, but I've had multiple conversations with myself in the car prepping before I told somebody no. Um, when you first started the club, was that a little bit of the start of this was like gaining the confidence to just be able to say, I got to say no? Absolutely. We, um, we would practice, we would write scripts, and we would role play. So we would work together on the person's problem. So it's, it's one thing to think about what you're going to say, but you also need to think about what the other person is going to say. And so being able to have a conversation um, in a kind of non-defensive, unthreatening way is really the goal that you, 
that you strive for. Now, Brenda, I know that you had some acting experience. Do you think that played into this kind of role play situation and and being able to take that and throw it into the no club? Probably. Um, Yeah, probably. You know, I think one of the things that actors do is they spend a lot of time preparing Mm. and they spend a lot of time saying, what if? And by doing those things, it really helps you put yourself in the other person's shoes so you can think about what they might want or what they need. Um, and, and I don't think you can ever practice too much. Mm, I love that. Being able to put yourself in the other person's shoes to really understand what they're looking for. We always assume no is this negative piece of you're building a wall between you and an employee or you and a boss. But what you're really doing is saying no and then actually understanding where they're coming from. No, that's right. In the same way, it's like a negotiation. You know, two of us are actually negotiation professors. And so there's enormous parallels uh, between this work and the work that we do teaching negotiation. Um, And, you know, the authors of the best-selling book, Getting to Yes, uh, Roger Fisher and Bill Urey, you know, one of their main tenets is think about the negotiation from the perspective of the other side. And so we really took that to heart here in our saying no to really think about the problem that that person was trying to solve and really trying to solve your problem, that is, you don't want to do it, and their problem together. Yeah, and creating some alignment on a, a better solution overall, potentially, right? and maybe even helping them self-identify if you're real real advanced in the conversation on what that better solution could be. So perhaps it's it's not even saying no, it's, it's saying yes to the right opportunity for, for both of you for mutual benefit. Yeah. And you can also think of it, what might be non-promotable to you might be promotable to someone more junior. And so what you'd like to see is a a non-promotable task taken off one person's plate and put on the plate of someone for which it is promotable. And that's just a win-win. And so we always look for solutions that, um, that do that. How much of this is understanding the organization or industry that you work for, right? Because I, you made the mention of the bartender earlier, and it really is truly understanding what a non-promotable task or what non-promotable work looks like and how that's how you have the ability to divvy that out. Um, you really have to be knowledgeable in your industry, in your organization to have that effect really go far. I mean, absolutely, you, you, you really need to know how you're going to be scored at the end of the day um, in your job, in your rank, your occupation, your industry, your company. And that's critical to knowing if something is promotable or non-promotable to you. So, and it will differ across jobs, you know, and we saw these in just about every occupation, engineers, architects, teachers, bartenders, TSA agents, grocery store clerks, consultants. And and what was non-promotable was, of course, different in all these professions, but those tasks were still there. Would a team benefit, organization benefit, in your opinion, in in this capacity to have visibility into each other's aspirations or, or goals, career development goals, and knowing where someone wants to go helps inform what you know, work can be distributed appropriately so that, you know, the promotable, non-promotable tasks are, you know, relatively even or 
what is, like you mentioned before, non-promotable for one person might be promotable for another based on where they intend to go and where they are today. But knowing that being the benefit. Sure. That, that would be very useful. Um, it, it may not, it depends on how big the team is, you know, sure, and, and how, what the industry is. But I think for people to know what it is they want and what their peers want it is very valuable. And for the supervisors to be able to know that and then think about how to distribute work so that everybody is getting opportunities to achieve what they want to achieve is, is really an ideal situation. How can an organization reassess how they assign and reward work? Is there, you know, in your research, have you found certain things that have worked better than others when they're trying to figure out how to potentially divvy that up? Well, one thing they should stop doing is asking for volunteers (laughs) because we know that women are much more likely to volunteer because we're all expecting them to do that. And and that, that becomes a a fundamentally unfair way to allocate the work. So if you're willing to take whoever volunteers for it, you might as well just rotate the task, you know, draw a name out of a hat, set up a schedule for who does it. So if it's work that no one really wants to do, which is a sure sign it's a non-promotable task, is to set up that rotation so that it's more fair so that that work is evenly distributed. Well, and there's that new word voluntold, which has got an even more negative connotation to it of you aren't volunteering, you're volun- you're told to volunteer. No, that, that's absolutely right. So with one of the pieces of the book, uh, we looked at Linda's day versus George's day, right? And there was some, some time blocking that which is what we refer to as the one thing, really scheduling out your calendar appropriately. Uh, That happened between what George was looking like and what Linda, you were looking like. Um, I assume that was like a very big aha moment of who was dictating your calendar and how out of control you were in your own day-to-day. What did that, can you take me back to that moment and tell us a little bit of how that felt? Yeah, it was really quite a revelation, you know, because I just kind of had this frantic day when I was running around and I was really wanting to get some research done on this project. You know, I'm a professor and that's how I'm evaluated is my research. And I just wasn't finding time in the day. I just had meeting after meeting after meeting of things that were good for my university, but weren't helping me get my research done. And, you know, my colleague George, we're about the same rank and level. And I went across the hall to talk to him. And I was like, you know, you've been hunkered down in your office all day doing research. (laughs) Can I see your schedule? And looking at that was really, you know, like I said, a revelation about how was it we were spending our time so differently. And that's when I kind of realized I was just getting pushed around by what others were expecting of me. Um, You know, that they would ask me because they knew I was going to say yes. And that's how I ended up doing so much of this non-promotable work. And I have fortunately a lot of autonomy in my job. Um, and I guess that can come back to bite you because <laughs> I, you know, made a lot of decisions about that and decisions that weren't, weren't very useful to my research career, but it also meant that I could start to change how I, how, how I focus my time And as you guys like to say, I wasn't focusing on the one thing that was going to help my career. And that was my research. And 
I'm passionate about the research that I do on the barriers to women's advancement. And I just wasn't doing it. And that was really a moment um, that made me want to make some changes in my life. I think some of these really amazing aha moments are, or revelations, as you call them, are really important for other females to understand and women to understand, um, you know, the how disproportionate it is. I can't find another word uh, to come to it with, but it's truly not equal. Um, were there other statistics during your research for the No Club that were revelations to you that made you go, oh my gosh, this this is even deeper rooted than we thought it was? Well, I would certainly say that 200 hours number, the, that women spend 200 more hours than men doing non-promotable work in this professional services firm that we that we looked at. And that that to us was just is quite alarming. And what it did is when you looked at the time those women spent on the promotable work, they spent less time on promotable work because of course women don't have more time in their day than men. So if they're doing non more non-promotable work, it means they're doing less promotable work. And so that was one of the big aha moments for us. And I think the other thing that we really contributed is, is understanding the drivers of that. And that is that women are asked more. And so this is a problem that women can work around the margins more. They can say no more, but it's also pointed to the fact that organizations need to change the way they operate and stop burdening women with these asks, these disproportionate asks. And so, you know, we talked about rotating tasks, um, setting up a schedule, random assignments, um, reassigning them to, you know, collecting data and looking at how much time people spend on promotable tasks and non-promotable tasks so that you can reassign work more fairly. There's just an enormous amount of things that organizations can do to change this if they truly want to provide equal opportunities for women to succeed. I was just... I was just thinking about this as, as you were as you were talking and relating to to myself or someone perhaps who's in a leadership role and and I know a lot of what we're we're talking about is you know tools and awareness for the individual so that you have the skills and the ability to to say no and to to control that uh, but I'm sure there's there's a perspective that's valuable if you are a a, a leader of a team or you are in a position of influence and taking some proactive ownership over where you might be asking someone to say yes to something that isn't in alignment with what their goals are and, and coming at it from the other side. That's absolutely right. Um, and, and kind of building on what Linda was saying about things that organizations can do, um, they can also think about whether this work should become promotable. So things like DEI initiatives, um, are really important. And in fact, McKinsey and Lean In did a study. And one of the things they found in the study was that 87% of companies that they surveyed said that work that supports employee well-being is really critical to the organization. But only 25% of those companies actually recognize that work. Mm. And that's huge. That's a huge number of uh, a disparity. Sorry, it's a big gap 
between what they think is should be done and what they're actually doing. So you're right that organizations can absolutely do things by looking at those tasks and making decisions about whether they should flip them and make them promotable tasks and reward them. What does rewarding non-promotable tasks look like? Well, it could be a lot of things. I mean, you could make it promotable in the sense that it becomes part of somebody's performance evaluation. So things like serving on DEI committees or onboarding new employees and training people are all really critical. And maybe they should be part of somebody's performance evaluation. Um, It could be that if you serve on an ad hoc committee or you organize a giant event, you know, somebody will give you some extra time off or give you a gift card to go get something that you might want. Or you could provide development, training and development opportunities to employees that fit with the kinds of things that they're interested in doing. So there are there are rewards that are both financial in terms of these kind of one off rewards, but there are also, you know, the opportunity to make it something that becomes part of your salary increase or bonus. I'm wondering if there's, you know, a conversation that should be had, you know, with the, from the organization in general and, and, you know, it's, it's team members to get clarity on, you know, what their goals are and their, what their focus is so that you are acknowledging and, you know, giving ample space and time for someone to focus on maybe projects that are in alignment with where they want to go. And, or there are uh, tasks that they they really want to say no to because it's in conflict with something that that's more impactful for them, and I'm just thinking from the organization's perspective as a leader or you know um, the organization in general is there a conversation that should be had to bring some awareness to that so that you are more acutely uh, conscious of what your team members want to be working on and and that's in alignment with where they want to go. Yeah, I mean, there's several pieces to that. And, and one is the individual conversations between supervisors and employees about their goals, uh, what they're trying to achieve, and having the discussion about how that person's time should be allocated. I mean, one of the most important decisions you make at work is how you spend your time. And spending your time in a way that satisfies the interests of yourself and the organization is something you want to make sure you're doing. And so having that part of the performance evaluation process to talk about how you're spending your time uh, is one thing that companies really ought to be focusing on. You know, the other thing they can they can do kind of at a more systematic level, um, and this relates to what Brenda was talking about, which was changing performance metrics. You know, I was... Um, giving a talk at, at one company a number of years ago on on this on this topic of promotable non promotable work, and during that talk, what they realized is that one of the things that they really wanted to reward people and encourage incentivize was people helping others, and that nowhere did that fit into their performance evaluation metrics. And so they actually developed a system where when you helped another person. That person could put a little note in your file saying this person was a great help. And those would accumulate throughout the year and would be reviewed at the end of the year. And, and that would became a metric. So if you did well on that dimension, you would have um, a bump in your pay or a bonus. And people that, that didn't uh, weren't doing that uh, didn't have that. And so in that way, they made this work promotable and incentivized it. I love that because there's certainly been a number of 
organizations I've worked for that have done the like leave notes, but it has no reward after that. It's just the feel good of somebody leaving a note on your desk saying, thanks for helping me. Um, and you're... Exactly. And those, those notes are, are, are nice, but it really also makes a difference to put some teeth behind it. You know, I'm curious what the root is um, and, and if there was any research behind, you know, is this inherently because people think that women are people pleasers? Uh, was this something we learned? Like I, I'll take myself, for example, um, the way that I grew up, I know is the reason that I have such a, an, a, a distaste for saying no, I'll say. Um, but by not unlearning that through my career, it hasn't made me a better employee. It's just made me a yes man. Um, did you find in your research and studies, you know, where the root cause of this came from? Well, there's a, a, an enormous field of research in psychology and sociology about norms that our society has. And while it's going to sound like I'm a dinosaur saying this, these are still uh, really relevant today. And that is that there are things that we expect of women and things that we expect of men. You know, sometimes those places, those things overlap, but in this context, one of the things that we expect of women is for them to be agreeable, helpful, to say yes to things that we, we ask of them. And so the research clearly demonstrates that when they don't do that, there can be a penalty. And this is, this is uh, has a big impact on, on women's decisions then to go ahead and say yes. And the research shows that men don't really face this constraint. They're more free to do what they want, to say yes, to say no, without penalty. And, and so that allows them to say no. And women then are trapped in this uh, kind of catch-22. Mm -hmm. um, if they say no, they risk looking like not a team player or being difficult. Um, but if they, if they say yes, then they're stuck with the task. There was a, a couple of Forbes articles that I saw, one in 2013 and one in 2015, both about ending gender biases around specifically like note taking. Um, and just knowing that those were articles from over seven years ago and we're still having this conversation uh, seems a little seems a little wild to me. Yeah, us too. <laughs> You're like, we've been working on this for a while. We're trying. <laughs> These things change really slowly. Um, and so it's not surprising that uh, gender norms there so still, of course, are evolving and they have evolved. But I think we're a bit impatient, um, which, is, which is why we wrote this book. And why you're here today. That's exactly right. You know, Linda and um, one of our other co-authors, um, we're meeting with some of their economist friends early on and talking about <clears throat> this issue. And some of the men in the group, you know, put out their ideas about why women were doing this work. And one of their ideas was because we like it. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought you might laugh at that. Oh, God. That yeah, so we had to prove that that was not the reason that they were doing it. So if, if someone is is listening and they they're they're locked in, they they completely align with this this concept and they see the value and they're empowered and feeling emboldened to go hit the ground running tomorrow and 
any any common pitfalls or you know things to be aware of as if someone were to go into this process early on to not you know create the uh, the wrong response yeah there are a number of pitfalls um you know feeling pressured into saying yes which is why we have the 24 hour rule where you have to wait 24 hours to say yes um but also people underestimate how long something is going to take. It's called the planning fallacy. And so we think we can bang a task out in a half an hour when it actually takes us a couple of hours. And so our hack for that is that we multiply by four. So we make an initial estimate. Oh, it's a half hour. We multiply by four to get a better estimate. And that'll be give you a little bit more of a reality check on whether I should do that. Uh, another thing that people do is they forget that they're going to be busy in the future. So someone asked me to do something in three months and I look at my calendar and it's free in three months. Like I've got a lot of empty space there. Um, and what you forget is in three months, your calendar is going to look just like it does today. That is jam packed. And so to sort of think about it as if the person were asking me to do this tomorrow, would I be just as happy to do it tomorrow as I am in three months? Uh, and the answer is probably no. And so that gives you a more realistic assessment of how busy you're going to be in the future and how how you should say no. That makes a lot of sense. I, I, I found it to be helpful to proactively you know, measure the amount of time that I think a particular task or activity is going to take. And then in reflection weekly, I'll look back and see how accurate I was and then just check and adjust based on that. To, I like the times four though, that I feel like I grossly underestimate uh, consistently how much time something's going to take. We we are very rigid about time blocking and, and it has been eye-opening to know how much time it actually takes me to do things. So I'm going to take the four and I'm going to bump it up to eight. <laughs> I'm going to start timing, doing my uh, times eight. Cause oh, that, wow, you're worse than me. <laughs> it's the meticulousness, unfortunately. Yeah, and so it's... The, Sorry, go the ahead. The time blocking that you do is really helpful for figuring out what your promotable work is and what your non-promotable work is because you're already keeping track of it. I think the, you know, if you if you want to get yourself into a situation <clears throat> where you're not always answering these things on the fly, but you're actually trying to be a little more strategic about how you're going to spend your time. You should look at how much time you're spending on work that's non-promotable. What are those tasks? How much time do you spend, you know, over the course of a week? Um, and then look at whether that's where you think it should be by looking at what other people are doing, for example. You know, how, how close in alignment is my time to that of my peers? Am I spending way more time on non-promotable work? Then I need to scale that back. And so what you want to do is begin looking at those tasks and making decisions about which ones you can move off of your plate. And you can't quite do that alone. You probably are going to need to do that with your supervisor, depending on sort of, you know, how your organization works. Um, but your goal is to reach a point where you have the right, what we call work-work balance, which is the balance of promotable and non-promotable work. The, the number one lie that stands between you and success from the book, The One Thing, is that everything matters equally. And that, that in this circumstance, I mean, there are the things that you are saying yes to that are being kind of forced onto you and you need to 
have the tools and the awareness to to be able to say no to those. And there's also the things that you're saying yes to on your own that may not be in alignment with your own uh, development plan. And so it, it just, it lands with me to remember that you have this, this need to look at everything that's on your, your list, all the tasks that you have and, and figure out like, what are the high ROI items on my, on my week or my month that I need to make sure I focus on. And then if I'm going to say yes to anything, it's those things. And I think it's, it's also for your own development, but then the things that, you know, are being kind of forced into your, your workflow as well. Right. Yeah, you're definitely right. You have to be strategic. And as you said, um, not all tasks matter equally. And some are going to really help you to achieve your goals and and some are not. And to be strategic about then uh, which ones to do and, and focus on. So Linda and Brenda, I'll ask you each, what's the one thing you'd like our listeners to take away from this conversation? I guess for me, it's having a sense of what your goals are and aligning how you spend your time with those, with, with those goals. And those have to be in sync or you're not going to achieve your goals. And I know that's really consistent with the focus of, of the book, The One Thing. It's knowing what those goals are and then finding a ways to spend time focusing on those goals. And, you know, that's really what our work on promotable versus non-promotable work is all about. It's finding that balance so that you can achieve what you want. You can be spending your time on the promotable work uh, that is consistent with your goals. So it's, it's really about prioritizing and being strategic. A hundred percent what Linda said, and that everybody can help an organization change how it distributes non-promotable work. I love that. Now, if somebody, um, or if, if our listeners are interested in learning more, if they want to create their own no club, they'd like to purchase the book, where, where do they go? Uh, they can go to our website, thenoclub.com, and they can purchase the book. We have an appendix from the book posted on the website about how to start your own club. And we have other resources as well. Um, they can also follow us on Twitter at The No Club. I love that. You'll, you'll catch a follow from me in a few minutes. Linda and Brenda, thank you so much. And I hope this episode really helped empower people to, and women specifically to, to start saying no. Thank you so much for having us. It was a real pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.